0: All right, this morning we are going to go back to 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 1. We've been here for several weeks, but there's so much packed into this, especially the beginning of this chapter, we don't want to miss any of it. And so we're going to start again reading at verse 3 this morning, down through verse 12. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 12. We're going to skip verses 1 and 2, but just so we know, that's Peter's introduction and greeting to the, the strangers. He calls them strangers that are scattered. That's the believers and who are elect according to the foreknowledge of God. And then in verse 3, where we're going to start is his doxology of praise to God. So we'll start at verse 3, 1 Peter chapter 1. The Bible says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ Wherein ye greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, ye are in heaviness through manifold temptations. That the trial of your faith, being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. Whom having not seen, ye love in whom, though now ye see him not, yet believing, ye rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your souls. Of which salvation the prophets have inquired and searched diligently, who prophesied of the grace that should come unto you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ which was in them did signify when it testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow unto whom it was revealed that not unto themselves, but unto us they did minister the things which now are reported unto you by them that have preached the gospel unto you with the Holy Ghost sent down from heaven, which things the angels desire to look into. And we'll stop there for now this morning and let's have a word of prayer as we get into our message. Lord God in heaven, we thank you again for bringing us together into this place. We know that it is your work, it is your drawing that has brought us here, and you have a purpose for us in being here. Lord, we want to worship you. We've worshiped you in our singing, in our praise, in our prayers, our thanksgiving, and Lord, now let us worship you in our attention to your word. Father, I know that you've given us these things to teach us things that are important, so help us to be open to be ready to receive these truths that you want us to hear from your word now. And Lord, may your spirit do his work in us. May your spirit fill me and give me voice and wisdom and strength to speak boldly and clearly. And may you speak through me so that we might be challenged by your word this morning. And Father, we thank you again for this opportunity to hear your word, to learn together and to grow together. And may you be receive the glory and praise during this time. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. As I've mentioned, in the first nine verses of this chapter that we've gone over so far, Peter has been focused on the salvation that we have in Jesus Christ. In verses 1 and 2, as I said, He addresses his readers as strangers. In other words, their home is not on earth. They're saved. And so their home really is in heaven. And he says they're scattered throughout the different areas. But then he says they're also elect. That means that they're chosen by God for this privilege of salvation. And it's elect according to the foreknowledge of God. Unto sanctification, or through sanctification of the spirit, unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Christ. So all of that is the work of God in us. Salvation and sanctification is God's work in us. In verse three, as he's thinking about this salvation that God gives us, he breaks out into this doxology of praise for this salvation. And again, it's only accomplished through the triune work of the God, the Father, uh, Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And he reminds us as we continue reading that our salvation is not guaranteed because of what we have done. It is the power of God that works salvation in us. It is the power of God that keeps us in that salvation. And it is the power and promises of God that give us hope for what Peter here calls an eternal inheritance that is incorruptible, that will not fade away, and that's reserved for us when we are called finally to be with him in heaven. And so, because the greatest part of our salvation is future, sometimes it's very easy to forget or to just take for granted what God has already done in us. And that's verses eight and nine where Paul, or Paul, where Peter reminds us that we are still experiencing salvation and we can experience the blessings of salvation in understanding and in the experience of a fully redeemed soul. And that's how he ends verse 9, receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your soul. But because the greatest part of our salvation is future, we have hope that this isn't all there is. And we saw that last week. And so because we have hope then, we can rejoice in trials. We can rejoice in temptations. The circumstances of our life are not enough to dissuade us from the faith that we have in Jesus Christ and from the salvation that he's given us. We know, as a matter of fact, without doubt, in faith, that what he's promised, he will do. And when he says, I will take care of you, he will do that. When he says, I will be with you, he is with us. When he says, I will provide your needs, he will provide our needs. And so our faith is what, in what he said he would do. The promises and power of God. And therefore, even when trials come, we don't have to fear. We don't have to lose faith. We don't have to give up. And so when we get to verse 10, Peter has explained all of these different parts of the great salvation that we have guaranteed to us, both present and future, because of what Jesus is doing in us and he says this in verse 10, of which salvation the prophets inquired and searched diligently. Now, I'm going to take him in and explain verses 10 through 12. But Peter is just so overwhelmed here with the experience of God's working in him and the experience that we can have of God's working in us through our salvation that he just can't stop talking about it. And that's not a bad thing. Now, as I mentioned this morning, when we started our service, I read uh, Psalm 96, and it says we should proclaim the salvation that God has given us. We should rejoice in that salvation. And I wonder, do we consider our salvation in Jesus Christ to be the greatest thing that we have ever experienced or ever possessed? Is it the most wonderful thing that we have in our lives? Or is it just something that God has done for us that, you know, it's part of my spiritual life and uh, it's whatever. Unfortunately, I think too many Christians take that attitude about salvation. Uh, You know, it's, it's, it's my life. It's what God has chosen me for. But we forget the blessings. We forget the power that we have. We forget all that God is doing in us and that he's promised us. And we go about our lives every day looking at all the things that happen around us and focused on our work and our duties and all the rest of it. And I I dare say there are many days that we go our whole day and never really thank God for the salvation we have in Jesus Christ. I'm guilty of that. And so Peter's reminding us of how great a salvation we have in Jesus Christ here. And he goes on in verse 10, and the reason we're looking at verses 10 through 12 today is because, because this is such a great thing that God has done in us. He's trying to show us there's other people, there's other instances, okay? In verse 10, he talks about the prophets who prophesied of salvation, and yet they continued to look into it, to search it out diligently, even though they didn't understand what they were writing, it was a great thing to them. It was the focus of their lives. And then by the time you get down to the verse, end of verse 12, he says, even the angels desire to look into this. This is how great salvation is. And so it's the fullness of this salvation that Peter refers to here in verses 10 through 12, which these other agents continue to want to know more about. We've been blessed by God with a great salvation, even now. We experience it even now if we're trusting in Christ. And it should uh, create such joy in us that we shouldn't be able to contain it. We should be talking about this, proclaiming God's goodness. As Peter says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 16 through 18, I shared this with you a couple weeks ago. Even in the midst of a hard life, he says, for which we cause we faint not, but though our outward man perish, yet the inward man is renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are seen not seen are eternal. And so where's our focus? Is it on... The eternal salvation we have in Christ, or is it on the temporal, everyday stuff of life? I'm not saying we don't pay attention to the duties we have, but we need to pay more attention and give God more praise and more thanksgiving for the salvation, because that is the greatest thing that has ever been offered to us or ever been given to us. So here, as we look at verses 10 through 12, Peter says, there are four agents Four divine agents offered in this message and and the process of salvation. And he says, we need to understand this. And I'm going to borrow a little bit from John MacArthur, and he says these four divine agents are divided up like this in these three or four three or four verses. He says the number one there's the Old Testament prophets who studied it. We see that in verses uh, 10 and 11. There's the Holy Spirit who inspired it. We see that in verse 11, the apostles who preached it, and then the angels who continue to investigate it. So 1 Peter says the Old Testaments are, the Old Testament prophets continue to study this, even though they're the ones that prophesied about it. Look at verse 10. He says, of which salvation the prophets have inquired and searched diligently who prophesied of the grace that should come unto you. Now I want you to remember here that Peter's writing to the church, okay? The New Testament believers. The church did not exist in Old Testament times when the prophets were prophesying about the salvation that was to come in Jesus Christ. In fact, the church didn't exist until the day of Pentecost. We read about that in Acts chapter 2. And that's when the Holy Spirit was sent by Christ to indwell his followers. We, we, We know about that event. So even as the prophets of the Old Testament were recording these promises of God about salvation through grace, they didn't understand everything that they were writing because they had not experienced it, and they would not experience it in its fullness. They were writing about something that was beyond their comprehension. They understood about God's grace, but they didn't understand all the details about it. And, and, and Peter goes on, he says in verse 11, So therefore they searched what manner of time and what person, the first what is there is what person, he says, what person and what manner of time the Spirit of Christ which was in them did signify. So as the Old Testament prophets are writing about the salvation that is going to come through a promised Redeemer, they're wondering, when is this going to happen? Who is this Redeemer that God is sending? Who is this Messiah? Now they knew the grace Because the grace of God has not changed. It's the same grace in the Old Testament as it is in the New Testament. The grace of God is offered to all men, both Old Testament and New Testament. By grace, Noah was saved from the flood. By grace, Abraham was called to be the the forerunner of the Jewish nation. By grace, everyone who received the promises of God understood that it was by grace. And so Peter here in verse 10 describes the grace that these prophets prophesied about as the grace that would come. Now they understood God's grace, but there was a special saving grace in Christ that would be fulfilled on the the cross. And as Jesus arose from the tomb. And so they're talking about the fullness of this grace that would come. That's how Peter says it. The only difference for Old Testament saints and New Testament saints is that Old Testament saints were trusting by faith in salvation in a Redeemer who would come. New Testament saints are trusting by faith in the Redeemer who has come. That gives us the advantage in a way because we're 2,000 years removed from that event now We know Jesus came as a person, we know who he was, we know he died, we know he rose from the grave, we know he did all that to pay the penalty for our sin, we know all that. And so we're looking back on historical facts and the spiritual premise for which all that happened, and by faith we accept that and say, yes, that sacrifice was for me, because I deserve death, and so Jesus died in my place. And so, I mean, in a sense, compared to the Old Testament prophets, we have it easy. We've been given all the evidence. We have it all written down. The Old Testament prophets, all they had was the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. And you don't find the name of Christ specifically written there. They didn't understand who this Redeemer was or specifically what would happen. And yet by faith, they accepted the promises of God that this Redeemer would provide life and deliverance from sin. So salvation by grace has always been the message of redemption for man, and the Old Testament prophets preached it, and yet they didn't even know exactly what they were preaching. And so Peter says here, after they received this, and as they were receiving this prophecy about the Redeemer that was to come, they continued to search diligently into it. It was important to them. It became the focus of their lives, Because this salvation in the promised Redeemer was the most important thing to them. And their faith was secured in the fact that God would keep that promise. And so everything about them was focused on understanding as much about it as possible. Now, the message of the Old Testament prophets all pointed to the coming Redeemer and this promised Messiah. We know to be Jesus Christ. They didn't know that. This was the foundation of their message. It all starts in Genesis chapter 3. You go all the way back to Adam and Eve. When Adam and Eve sinned, God came down and he said, you have sinned and I'm going to therefore declare a curse. And God pronounced the curse upon the earth. He pronounced a curse upon mankind and he pronounced a curse upon Satan. And as he's pronouncing the curse upon Satan in Genesis 3.15, God says, I will put enmity between thee and the woman, between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head and thou shalt bruise his heel. In other words, that's God saying, Satan, you're going to try to destroy the redeemer that I'm going to send, but all you're going to do is temporarily wound him. But the redeemer that I will send will crush you. That's the promise of the redeemer that God gave way back in Genesis chapter 3. When God called Abraham to follow him, in Genesis chapter 2, remember, God wanted Abraham to sacrifice his only son, Isaac, that one son who is the son of promise, who is to become the great nation that God promised. And then God says, Abraham, I want you to give him as a sacrifice. And as they're walking up Mount Moriah, which would become the mountain on which Jesus would be sacrificed, as they're walking up Mount Moriah, Remember, Isaac looks at Abraham and he says, we have the wood, we have the fire. What about the lamb? What are we going to sacrifice? And Abraham answered, and I don't know if he knew this was prophecy or not, but he answered, my son, God will provide himself a lamb as an offering. Now, God did provide the ram, but ultimately that was a prophecy about Jesus Christ providing himself as the lamb of God, the offering of sin for the whole world as Moses explained God's law to the generation of Israel that was ready to go into the promised land after wandering in the wilderness, 40 years. All the older generation had perished. The younger generation was now ready to go into the promised land. And Moses said these words to them, The Lord thy God will raise up unto thee a prophet from the midst of thee, of thy brethren like unto me, unto him ye shall hearken. He goes on to explain this prophet. And the prophet there is capital P, and he's talking about Jesus Christ, the promised redeemer. He didn't know it was Jesus Christ. But it's this redeemer, prophet, the ultimate prophet that God would send someday, that all Israel would listen to. We know that will be fulfilled in the end times. David, in 2 Samuel chapter 7, God promised to him, that his throne would be established forever. Now, obviously, David wasn't going to live forever and sit on the throne. Solomon didn't live forever and sit on the throne. And very shortly after Solomon, the kingdom divided. And eventually, the kingdom was overthrown. And no one sat on the physical throne at Jerusalem because there was no throne at Jerusalem. There was no Jerusalem. The city had been destroyed by Babylon. And yet God's promise that the throne would be established forever on the earth still is true because Jesus Christ was that heir of David in the lineage of David that that, that God the Father will set up on the throne of earth in the millennial kingdom. But right now in heaven, God has given Jesus Christ, his son, power over all the earth. And so all of these prophecies we read, and rec- which were recorded by these Old Testament prophets, if you will, but they had no idea, really, the fullness and the, the details of what they were prophesying. Now, there are f- more than 47 prophecies in the Old Testament that predict specific details of the coming Messiah. And you can go back and, in the Old Testament and look these up. Okay, I have a list of it at home. If you want that, ask me. I'll bring that for you but there are at least 47 specific details about the coming Messiah that are predicted in the Old Testament. Things like he would be born of a virgin. He would be born in Bethlehem. He would ride a donkey into Jerusalem. He would be crucified. He would be abandoned by his friends. And the list goes on and on. 47 very specific detailed prophecies that the people who wrote them had no idea really who they were writing about specifically. They knew It was the promised redeemer and king, but they didn't realize it was going to be Jesus Christ. That was one of the parts of the Messiah's coming that didn't make sense to even people in Jesus' day. The prophecies of his suffering. Now, they looked at this promised Messiah as a king. Many of the prophecies say that he would come as a king, the promise to David, the king will sit on the throne forever. And so they're looking for a king that will come and overthrow. God told Israel, his people, many times in the Old Testament, I will send a deliverer. He will loose you from your enemies. He will deliver you from evil. Okay. And so the people of Israel specifically were looking for this conquering king to come. What they couldn't understand is, along with those prophecies of a conquering king, there are all these prophecies of a suffering servant. Those seem like two different, diametrically opposed ideas. You can't have a suffering servant who is the conquering king. And so in their minds, it didn't make sense. But a suffering servant is exactly what Jesus came as in his first advent. And the the, the Old Testament prophets prophesied about it in Psalm 22. Let me just read you part of Psalm 22. I want you to think about Jesus, his trial, the beating that he received before he was crucified, and his crucifixion. And listen to these details written by David in Psalm 22. All they that see me laugh me to scorn. They shoot the lip out. They shake the head saying, he trusted on the Lord that he would deliver him. Let him deliver him, seeing he delighted in him. That's what the people said when Jesus was hanging on the cross. This is written in Psalm 22. David goes on in verse 14, I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted in the midst of my bowels. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue cleaveth to my jaws, thou hast brought me into the dust of death. For dogs have compassed me. The assembly of the wicked have enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I may tell all my bones. They look and stare upon me. They part my garments among them and cast lots upon my vesture. That's not the Gospels, that's Psalm 22. And David didn't even realize when he was writing this, that he was writing the very specific details of what would happen to Jesus Christ on the cross. Isaiah 53, this is the prophecy of Isaiah. He is despised and rejected of man, a man of sorrows and acquainted with, with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. Think about as these Old Testament prophets are writing these things, not really understanding how very specifically they would be fulfilled in Jesus Christ. They were written hundreds of years before Christ ever was born. And yet the details are so specific, it's almost as if they were watching it happen. And yet they didn't understand all of what was entailed in what they wrote from the Holy Spirit. Now, they didn't just write about the suffering. They wrote about the glories of the Messiah, too. Peter tells us that. It says, the sufferings of Christ and the glory that was to follow... Psalm chapter 2, again, the same psalmist that we read in Psalm 22, David writes this, "...yet have I set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree the Lord has sent unto me, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten Thee." Talking about Jesus, "...ask of me, and I shall give Thee the heathen for Thine inheritance, the uttermost parts of the earth for Thy possession." Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron. Thou shalt dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. We read about that in Revelation. That will take place in Revelation at the end times. At Jesus' second coming, Christ will return to earth. He will conquer his enemies. He will take control of the earth that he already has power over. And all men will bow down and worship him. That's Psalm 2, by the way. Isaiah chapter 9. You know these verses. Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. That's not Luke, by the way. That's written by Isaiah hundreds of years before Christ is born. The government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there shall be no end upon the throne of David, upon his kingdom to order it, to establish it with judgment, with justice from henceforth, even forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Those are the kind of passages that Jews get excited about because they want that conquering king. They want that eternal kingdom. They want to be restored to their land and to their prominence and have prosperity from God again. That's the promises they're looking for. And so they ignore Isaiah 53 and Psalm 22. And then we read in Zechariah chapter 9, and I'm sure this is a passage that the thousands or tens of thousands of Jews who welcomed Christ into Jerusalem as he rode in on that Palm Sunday, remember on the donkey and they were putting the palm branches down and proclaiming blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. Here's what they were thinking about, the prophecy from Zechariah chapter 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem." Behold, thy king cometh unto thee. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding upon a donkey and upon the foal of a donkey. And I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace unto the heathen and his dominion shall be from sea even to sea and from the river even to the ends of the earth. That's what they expected Jesus to do when he rode into Jerusalem on that donkey. And now you know why many of them a week later were just like, get rid of him. We don't need him. They were looking for a mighty conquering king, not a suffering Messiah. So the prophets prophesied of the suffering Messiah, but they prophesied of a conquering Messiah as well. And thirdly, they prophesied of a Messiah who would save. Isaiah chapter 61, verse 1. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because the Lord hath anointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek. He hath sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to them that are bound. That was the ministry of Jesus Christ, prophesied by Isaiah back in Isaiah 61. and Jeremiah 31, verses 33 to 34, God gave Israel what we call the New Covenant. The New Covenant didn't start with the Gospels. The New Covenant was given to Israel back by Jeremiah. It says, This shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, saith the Lord, I will put my law in their inward parts and write in their hearts. I will be their God. They shall be my people. They shall teach no more every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them, saith the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity And I will remember their sin no more. Now that will take place fully in the end times, at the end of the tribulation. When Paul says, all Israel shall be saved. That's the remnant. But we see all these very specific prophecies by Old Testament prophets And they didn't know or understand exactly what they were writing. And so Peter says this was so important to them that they continued to search it out. They put their life into finding out as much as possible as they could, even though they weren't going to experience it themselves. The Old Testament prophets are very detailed, very specific, but they didn't understand whom or when these things will be fulfilled. Go back to Daniel, if you remember Daniel. He's a great example of this. Daniel was whisked away from his home country as Jerusalem was conquered by Babylon as a very young boy and basically put in the king's service. And we don't we know the story of Daniel, but he grew up basically in a foreign country serving a foreign heathen king, two of them, in fact, at least two, And Daniel was very diligent in still studying the Pentateuch and studying the prophets of God. He fulfilled what Peter is saying here. He studied. He diligently searched for the details of what even he prophesied. But he knew about the Pentateuch. He knew about the Psalms. He even knew about the writings of Jeremiah, who came shortly before him. Because if you go to Daniel chapter 9 sometime and read the passage in Daniel chapter 9 in verse 2, Daniel is praying to God, asking him, basically, I have read in the books, talking about Jeremiah's writing, I have read in the books that at the end of this certain time period that you are going to restore your people to their land. Aren't we there yet? He says, I've been keeping track, Lord. You said 70 years, and we're about at the end of 70 years. Now, Daniel's understanding may have been that at the end of those 70 years of captivity and exile, that's when Jesus was going to come, or the promised Messiah, and restore Israel, restore Jerusalem, restore the kingdom. And so he's praying in that regard. But God sent an angel... And said, I know you want to know this. I know you want to see this happen. But let me give you some more information, Daniel. It's not going to be just 70 years. You are going to go back to Jerusalem, or at least the people will. Daniel, I don't think, ever did. But the people of Israel were called back to Jerusalem shortly after Daniel. But he said to Daniel, not yet. The full, final fulfillment of that kingdom is not going to be yet. In fact, he gave what we call Daniel's 70 weeks to Daniel. And he said there's going to be 490 years and there's going to be 483 years up to the Messiah. So you're not going to be around, Daniel. But at 483 years, the Messiah will come to the earth, but then the Messiah will be cut off. So that's not the kingdom either. And then there's going to be a great pause where God removes his attention directly from Israel and puts his attention on something we call the church. And there's going to be this great period of time between the 483rd year and the 484th year, those last seven years we call the church age. Daniel didn't understand that. He didn't know what the church was. He didn't have that picture, but God told him this is what's going to happen. Trust me. And then at the end of that period, we're going to do the final seven years, which we're going to call the tribulation. And that's when God is going to gather his people, the remnant of Israel, to himself, and all of that remnant will be saved, and then the kingdom will come. You can read all that in Daniel. So Daniel is a great example of somebody who studied this but didn't understand it. John the Baptist even. You think about John the Baptist. He's the one who saw Jesus walking toward him just before he baptized him, and he pointed and he said, Behold the Lamb of God which taketh away the sin of the world. And then not long after that, John the Baptist was put in prison and he sent messengers from prison to Christ asking Jesus, Are you the promised Messiah? Or should we look for somebody else? So even John wasn't sure, even though he'd been called to proclaim the coming of the Lord. But this greatness of this salvation, of the message of the Redeemer this was what completely occupied, we'll call it the preoccupation of all of the Old Testament prophets. So the prophets prophesied of that salvation. We're going to have to hurry. Second, Peter says it was the Holy Spirit who inspired the message of salvation. Now, the prophets prophesied because the Holy Spirit was in them. He tell, Peter tells us that. Verse 10, of which salvation the prophets have inquired and searched diligently who prophesied of the grace that should come unto you. Look at verse 11, searching what or what manner of time the spirit of Christ which was in them did signify when it testified beforehand of the sufferings of Christ and the glories that should follow. So the Holy Spirit is involved here. He's the one who inspired or gave the message in the first place. And Peter reinforces this idea in Second Peter chapter 1, verse 21. In that verse, he says, For prophecy came not in old time by the will of man. In other words, we didn't just make this up. But holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. Now, notice that Peter uses in this verse here in 1 Peter, the phrase Spirit of Christ. He doesn't say Holy Spirit. He says Spirit of Christ. Spirit of Christ, Christ being the title, the anointed one of Jesus, the Messiah, that's the one that, that designates him as the Messiah. So it's the spirit of the promised one, the promised Messiah. This is the same spirit of God that came down on Jesus at his baptism like a dove. It's the same spirit of God that came down like a mighty wind and flames of fire upon the believers of Pentecost. It's not a different spirit. And Peter is emphasizing here that it's the Holy Spirit that's involved not only in the Old Testament, but also in the New Testament. He was involved in the giving of this message. He's involved in the fulfilling of this message because he's the one that baptizes believers into the body of Christ. He's the one that regenerates us. It's all the work of the Holy Spirit in us. And so this spirit, Peter says, that does all this work, that's involved in the giving and the fulfilling of salvation, it is the spirit of Christ. He equates the two. Now, when Christ was on earth, remember he was baptized and the Holy Spirit came upon him. But Jesus is God. And so it's the same Spirit of God that was in Jesus that's in us. It's the same Spirit of God that gave these prophecies to the Old Testament prophets that gives us guidance and understanding the written prophecies and the the truth of the New Testament that we have today. So Peter wants us to understand that the Holy Spirit, the same Spirit, is the Spirit of Jesus Christ, of the Savior, but he is the Spirit of God that we have in us today. The revelation of these prophecies was God's message given through his Spirit. It was given to men, and it was given to men who would never see the fulfillment of it. In fact, in Hebrews 11, it talks about these Old Testament saints, they all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having them seen them afar off and were persuaded of them and embraced them and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. Same words Peter uses here in verse 1 and 2. In Hebrews eleven thirty nine through 40, again, all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. Since God had provided something better for us that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. In other words, the Old Testament prophets, the Old Testament saints didn't even get what we have. But it's all through the Spirit of God. And like I said, we have it good compared to them. We have the same Spirit. The Spirit gives us the same truth. It's the same message of salvation. We just have a much better understanding of it. So it's inspired by the Holy Spirit, same spirit that we have within us now. Third, it's the New Testament apostles that that Peter says preach this message of salvation. So it's prophesied by the Old Testament prophets. It's inspired by the the Holy Spirit of God. And now it's also preached by the, the apostles. In the second part of verse 12, Peter says this, that not unto themselves, but unto us they did minister the things which are now reported unto you by them that have preached the gospel unto you with the Holy Ghost sent down from heaven. So in the second part of verse 12, he's saying it wasn't given to the Old Testament prophets for their benefit. It was given to the Old Testament prophets for our benefit. And Peter's talking about the church now, okay, church in his day and the church age. So when you read the New Testament, especially the epistles written by Paul, by Peter, what is the message? Is it different than the message of the Old Testament? Is it something new? It's really the same thing. Peter and Paul had the Old Testament as their Bible. They didn't have the New Testament. And so what they wrote was nothing more than an extension of what we see in the Old Testament, making it more clear for those who lived in Peter and Paul's day, and then the future church that was to come. So, think about Peter's sermon. What was his message right after Pentecost? Remember Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. The Holy Spirit comes down upon the believers. And as they go out, testifying and praising God in tongues, in, in known languages, Okay, Peter then starts to preach and he says, "'Men and brethren, let me freely speak unto you "'of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, "'his sepulchre is with us unto this day. "'Therefore, being a prophet, "'and knowing that God had sworn an oath to him "'that the fruit of his loins according to the flesh, "'he would raise up Christ to sit on his throne.'" So far, Paul is, or Peter's just saying, you know about David, you know about the promise God gave to David, about his throne being established forever, about the Messiah sitting on the throne. And then he says, "He seeing this before spake of the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in hell, neither his flesh did see corruption. This Jesus hath God raised up whereof we are all witnesses. The apostles had the details that the prophets were missing, but the message is the same. The apostles basically just took the message of the Old Testament prophets, the promised Messiah, that king you're looking for, the suffering servant. It's Jesus. You killed him, remember? And he came back from the dead. And at the end of the sermon, Peter says, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. So the message of salvation is the message of the apostles. It's no different than what we read in the Old Testament, except that it has more details. Now we know who, and we know when, and we know how. In Ephesians, Paul says this, Ephesians is considered to be probably the most complete um, expounding of the doctrine of salvation of any of the epistles. As Peter, and I'm sorry, Paul says this if in chapter 3, "'If ye have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God, which is given to me, you, you word, how that by revelation he made known unto me the mystery.'" And I want you to keep that word mystery in your minds. "'As afore I wrote unto you in few words, whereby when ye read ye may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ.'" which in other ages was not made known unto the sons of men, as it is now revealed unto his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs and of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ by the gospel, whereof I was made a minister according to the gift of the grace of God given to me by the effectual working of his power. They knew about the grace of God in the Old Testament. They did not know about the church. They knew that God's grace would extend beyond just Israel. They did not realize that the grace of God through Jesus Christ in salvation would bring another new, entirely new entity called the church. And then it's not about Jews or Greeks or Gentiles. Paul expounded upon that. He said, For those who are in the church in Galatians chapter 3, for as many of you as have been baptized into Christ, you have put on Christ. There is neither, therefore, Jew nor Greek. There is neither bond nor free. There is neither male nor female. We are all in Jesus Christ. And so this message of the gospel is exactly what the apostles preached. And not only did they preach it, but they were willing to die for it. And many others were too. Think of Stephen, the first martyr. He was killed for his testimony of faith. Philip was not an apostle. He was one of the first, what we call deacons, and yet he was called Philip the Evangelist. And he was preaching the good news of the gospel. In Acts, you can read about others, Apollos, Priscilla and Aquila, Barnabas, Timothy, the list goes on and on and on, ministers of the gospel. And it's the same message that's preached today by faithful ministers of the gospel, that Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of all of those prophecies of the Old Testament given to them by the Holy Spirit, which now the Holy Spirit makes known to us through the revelation of his word. So the, the apostles preached the message, and finally the angels, Peter says, continue to investigate it. It's so important to them, the angels want to know more about it. Now, there's no way we can ever understand the experience of the angels. Think about where they are. In the throne room of God, in person, with God, worshiping him in his presence. We can't understand that. We get a little picture of that in Isaiah and Revelation, but we don't understand how that works. And in fact, the angels, the elect angels, those who are still in heaven, are preserved in holiness by God. They will never sin. They will never do wrong. They are perfect in their being because God has made them that way and preserved them that way. Oh, if that were only true for us today, right? Our soul's been redeemed, but man, the body can't wait for that to be taken care of. So we don't understand the angels. But here's the other side of that coin. The angels have no idea what it means to be redeemed, to be lost in sin, to be broken, to be separated from God, and then to experience God's love in restoring that relationship in understanding that Jesus Christ came and gave everything so that we could experience that. The angels have no idea what that is. They can't understand that because they'll never experience it. Remember, it was the angels who announced the birth of Jesus to the shepherds. They proclaimed that Jesus would bring peace and goodwill to the earth. And even though they were messengers of that news, they didn't really fully comprehend what that news meant? Peace with God? Well, they're already at peace with God. Why are we proclaiming peace with God? Because mankind wasn't. The Greek word, interestingly, in this verse 12, where it says the angel's desire to look into, the Greek word for look into is literally translated to bend down or stretch one's head forward. So think about the other day in my house we had an incident with a mouse. Okay? It caused a little bit of commotion, but you know, when you first spot the mouse and then it runs and it hides, right? Everybody's looking trying to find this mouse. That's the idea. Okay? That's what the angels are doing with the idea of salvation. They they're trying to figure this out. In fact, that word looked into is the same word that is used when John and Peter run to the empty tomb and John gets there first, but he doesn't go any he bends down and looks into the tomb. That's the same Greek word as used to say, this is what the angels are doing as far as our salvation is concerned. Angels don't need to be saved. They can't be saved. They will never experience redemption, and yet they long to know more about it. Because it is the central component of all of human history, of all of creation. It all focuses on God's plan of redemption. The whole Bible is God's message of redemption to man. The angels want to know more about it. Their main purpose is to glorify God, to praise him, and they do that all the time in heaven. In Revelation 5, we see a picture, I'm going to finish up with this, we see a picture of the raptured church in heaven. So 24 elders represent the church already in heaven, and they are singing a new song in verses 9 and 10, and that song is, thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof, talking about Jesus Christ. For thou wast slain, and hast redeemed us to God by thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation, and hast made us unto our our God kings and priests, and we shall reign on the earth. That's the 24 elders. Right after this, the angels of heaven join in the chorus, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb that was slain. They can't sing redeemed. That's reserved for people. And so we have something that the angels can't even experience. We have a song that we can sing in praise to God that the angels can't. The angels have been witnesses and messengers of God's great plan of salvation but they will never experience it personally like we have. How great a salvation we have. This salvation that we enjoy is a magnificent display of God's character. It shows his love, it shows his mercy, it shows his justice and judgment. It shows his patience, his long-suffering, his sovereignty. All of that bound up in this experience of salvation in our lives. And his ultimate purpose is to bring glory to himself through our salvation. That's why he saves us. Even though Jesus Christ is at the center of it all, he's the focus of it all, he's chosen us to be the recipients and the messengers. And the fact that God has chosen us to be both the recipients and the messengers of the greatest gift of grace ever bestowed on any part of God's creation should not only humble us, but should inspire us and evoke us to just proclaim that message and the glory of God with all that we have. And so we come all the way back to where we started. The question is, how important is your salvation to you? How great is that work that God has done in you through the blood of Jesus Christ? We are new creatures. For those of us who have been saved, and even the angels wonder this about us, we should wonder, with so great a salvation, how could so many people reject it? If this is the greatest gift, the greatest act of grace ever done in the history of mankind, how can people just turn away from this? Hebrews 2.3 says, How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed unto, them, unto us by them that heard him? This is the greatest experience of life, not the Christian life, of life. Salvation is the greatest thing that you could ever have in this life. And that we will experience forever, by the way. And as Peter exhorts us when you get to his second epistle... He says, Wherefore, rather, brethren, give diligence to make your calling and election sure, for if you do these things, you shall never fall. Is our salvation in Christ the greatest thing that we have? And do we live that way? If it is, we should sound like Peter. Blessed be God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who's given us this amazing inheritance, this hope, a lively hope, this eternal life promised to us, and a redeemed soul now. That's the message that should come out of our life. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your love, and thank you for this salvation that you've offered in Jesus Christ. Lord, I know many here have experienced it. You know the hearts. You know the conditions of each person here. You know those who submitted to you in faith and who have already experienced the joy and blessing of being redeemed. But Lord, there may be also those who don't know the joy of salvation, who have not experienced this renewing by the Holy Spirit, the hope in Jesus Christ. And so I pray that you would take this word that you've given us today and work in their hearts. Help them to accept this truth, to experience the greatest gift that they could ever get in the grace that comes only from you. Lord, we give you praise and we give you honor. We thank you for all you've done for us and especially for the redemption in Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray, amen. We'll close with number 326.